Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. state of gray decisions. Do you ever wonder how to just put it all together? What is God's will for me right now? Does my faith even affect my everyday life? These are gray yet pivotal questions. This is not good versus evil, light versus the darkness. These small yet big choices are what we call life. So, how do you find discernment in it all? Over the last couple of weeks, as you know, we have been spending our Sundays in the book of Proverbs, and today we're continuing that series entitled Wisdom, the Nuts and Bolts of Life. And today we're turning to our scripture reading, which comes from 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're reading together from verses 16 to 28. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28, and you'll find it on page 524 in the Pew Bible. While you're turning that up, allow me to say we will look at the entire chapter. We'll read the latter half first, and then further on in our study, we'll come, or in fact, in a couple of minutes, we'll come to the first half of the chapter. And the reason I'm doing this this morning is this, that over the last few weeks, as you know, we've been in Proverbs, and this morning I wanted us to look beyond the Proverbs of what Solomon wrote to take an example from Solomon's life and to examine his life and ask, where did he receive the wisdom he required in order to live a godly life. And so that's where we're going this morning. But we're breaking into 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16, and again it's page 524 of the church Bible. A wise ruling. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I have a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, No, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, No, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, This one says, My son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, No, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. And so they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. 
The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. This morning, I want to begin with a story I read to you three or four years ago, and it comes from Philip Yancey's very helpful book, What's So Amazing About Grace. If you really want a solid Christian read where biblical principles are explained and then applied, Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace, is an excellent book, and he's a first-class writer. And the story I've read to you before seems appropriate to share again, and I'm conscious that some of you will have forgotten, so please bear with me begins like this. In the Boston Globe, an account was recorded in June 1990 of a most unusual wedding banquet. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, and pointed to a variety of flower arrangements that they both liked. They both had expensive taste, and the bill came to $13,000. The couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom took cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little longer. And when his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet for their wedding, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, the banqueting manager had only bad news. The contract is binding, she said. You're only entitled to $1,300 back, and you are now left with two options. One, to forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead and have the banquet anyway. I'm really sorry, she said. It seemed crazy. But the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a massive blowout. Ten years before, the same woman who had been living in a, had been living in a homeless shelter She'd got back to her feet, found a good job, set aside a sizable nest egg, and now she had the world, excuse me, now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was, that summer evening, in June 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. <laughs> she then sent invitations to the rescue missions and the homeless shelters. And that warm evening, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off cardboard dined on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served senior citizens propped up by, by crutches and aluminium walkers. 
bag ladies, vagrants, addicts took one night off of their hard life on the sidewalks outside the hotel and instead shipped, sipped on champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band melodies inside the hotel late into the evening. What a wonderful story. And I think most of us would say it's wonderful because she handled it so well. Now, let me pause for a second and ask you to use your imagination. Let's move beyond the evening of the banquet six, seven, eight, nine weeks later. When the telephone calls from friends, the cards, the notelets, the letters of support were becoming less frequent. What does this girl do about the rest of her life? Imagine what she had come through. She'd fallen in love. Ten years before, she'd been homeless in a shelter. She'd now got herself on her feet. She was making something of her life. She'd fallen in love with a man of her dreams. She was looking forward to married life. She was thrilled and excited, and it could not get much better. And then it all changed. She responded in a spectacular fashion. And now, how does she move forward and focus on the lady she is becoming rather than where she's been? In the passage in front of us this morning, Solomon has just become king of Israel. His father David had ruled the throne for decades. And Solomon was now called by God to lead the people of Israel. Where would he get the wisdom, the insight, the strength, the support, the encouragement that he would need for all the years to come? Solomon had seen the pressure of being king. He understood the challenges that would come his way. He understood that some of them would be so great, he wasn't sure whether he was coming or going. And that night, as he drifted off to sleep, God came to him in a dream and said, Solomon, if I could answer one of your prayer requests this morning, what is the greatest single need in your life? Can you imagine? What would you say? Solomon, of course, could have prayed for the protection of God and the people of Israel. He could have prayed for health and wealth and prosperity for the entire nation. He could have prayed for international relations with Egypt and the other neighboring countries. But he asks for a discerning heart. And notice how God responds in verse 10. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. The Lord was pleased with Solomon. Can you think of another occasion when God was pleased? Do you remember the baptism of Jesus? When He comes up out of the water, and God the Father speaks in thunderous tones, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Have you experienced the pleasure of God? 
that moment when you're fully in tune with His purpose and His will, and He spectacularly answers prayer, and He's leading and guiding and directing. He's taking you by the hand, and that's the moment when your heart is open, and praise and adoration goes heavenward, and you are so thankful for His steadfast faithfulness, the pleasure of God. And why is God pleased with Solomon? He asks for wisdom. And he asks for wisdom not that he would grow in the esteem of others. Let me say that again. He asks for wisdom not that he might grow in the esteem of others. He asks for a discerning heart in order that he might serve others. Do you see that? He wasn't looking to grow in their esteem. He was looking to serve them. And no wonder God was pleased. He wasn't seeking to line his own pockets. He wasn't looking for prestige, leadership, power. He was looking to serve. And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And notice how God responds. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administrating your justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And notice what comes next. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. No equal among kings. Matthew's gospel, Jesus is seeking, and He's talking of prayer, and He says this, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things shall be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Solomon, Father, I am only a child. I cannot do this on my own. I need you to walk with me and sustain me. I need you to strengthen me. This is beyond me. I need wisdom from on high. Seek first the kingdom of God. Then all these things shall be added unto you. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians arguably the best-known passage in all of that spectacular epistle, Ephesians 3.20, and God is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things shall be added unto you. And God spectacularly, with outlandish grace, gave Solomon the wisdom he was seeking, and blessed him beyond measure, because in Solomon's eyes he understood this, that seeking first the kingdom of God was his priority. Now let's look at the passage we read, the second half of the chapter. If we have seen where Paul, excuse me, where Solomon's wisdom comes from, here we find a very dramatic illustration 
of his wisdom in action. And it's the story, of course, of these two ladies. We read the story earlier. One came and said, I woke up the next morning, my baby was dead, but when I examined him, I discovered, in fact, that she had taken my baby, claimed it was hers, and put her dead child beside me. And the other one says, no, that's not true. There was no one else in the house. And can you imagine the emotion of the moment? Can you imagine the hurt and pain of both these ladies? It is ratcheting up. It is accelerating. And Solomon has to come to the truth. And with divine wisdom, Solomon in verse 24 says, bring me a sword. I remember reading this passage in my early 20s. I'd come to experience God in a spectacular way, and for the first time in my life, I was aware of His love and His goodness and His grace, and I couldn't get enough of His Word. And I remember reading this passage and thinking, he's asked for a sword. This can't be. This isn't wisdom. This is barbarism. This is horrific. What on earth is he going to do with a sword? And as the story unfolds, we know exactly what happens. He says, cut the child in two, give half to one mother, half to the other. And you can imagine the entire courtroom, you'd hear a penny drop. It's everyone so, this can't be. Is this the king we now have? This is crazy. And Solomon knew exactly what he was doing. And of course, the lady to whom the child belonged stepped forward and simply said, give him to the other. Give him to the other. Don't kill him. Don't harm him. I'd rather give him away and lose him than have him hurt. Talk about wisdom from on high. Talk about God intervening. And how does the passage conclude? It concludes in a dramatic fashion as well. Verse 28, when all of Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Wisdom from God. Now, you may well be here this morning and saying, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I followed what you've outlined in the Scriptures, but I am not living in the days of Solomon. I don't have the Solomon, the wisdom that Solomon has, but understand this. I have a job offer in Seattle, and I need to be there in 25 days or change my job. What am I going to do? It's one thing looking back to Solomon, but I need an answer today. What am I going to do? And you may be here this morning quietly sitting, listening, grieving, prayerfully saying, Father, we have tried for a family for years. You don't seem to have answered that prayer. I need discernment. I need wisdom. I am hurting. If we have looked at Solomon's relationship with the Lord that gave him wisdom, that's the first point we need to remember. If we have looked secondly at a very dramatic illustration of his wisdom and action, allow me to close not so much with another dramatic point, but with the words that Solomon wrote in Proverbs. 
the most memorized of all of the passages of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you're unfamiliar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, let me encourage you to do this this week. Read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 twice each day, morning and evening. It takes less than 40 seconds to read. And then memorize it. Immerse yourself in it. Seek to apply it to the challenges that lie before you. And remember the power and potency and the profundity of the words, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Meredith, Lexi, let me give you a verse for your baptism this morning. Sarah, let me draw you in there as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Now, allow me please to illustrate that. Three, four years ago, I was listening to Chuck, uh, Chuck Swindoll, who is one of my favorite preachers, an outstanding preacher, a very fine writer, and I try to read and listen to Chuck as often as I can. And about three and a half, four years ago, he gave a checklist to his congregation one Sunday morning. And so I'm hoping he'll forgive me as I take it and read it to you this morning because it's immensely helpful. This is what he says. When we choose to worry without ceasing, lying awake at night, twisting and turning, we do not trust in the Lord. When we try to fix the complicated and the complex, we are tempted to lean on our own understanding. When we think we can handle the impossible in our own strength, we are not trusting in the Lord, but relying on our own strength. When we hurry ahead and do not wait for Him, we are not acknowledging Him in all our ways. When we doubt biblical principles and promises and we lean on our own understanding, we are no longer trusting in the Lord. When we manipulate and maneuver to get our own way, we do not trust in His purposes and plans, but we trust in ourselves and our own scheming. When we listen to human counsel and give it higher priority than Scripture, we are not allowing Him to make our path straight. When we step in without listening or praying, we no longer trust in Him when we no longer trust in the Lord and promote ourselves so that others will notice us and we rely on our own ingenuity, we are not trusting in Him. And we consistently cling to others in order to feel secure and loved. We need to acknowledge Him in all our ways and trust Him to make our path straight. And finally, we know His Word and yet resist obeying it that is the moment when we find ourselves not trusting in the Lord, but in everything else instead. Let me plead with you. Let me talk to you in the most pastoral manner possible. Hear me, please. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall make your path straight. And when you're hurting, when you're grieving, when you are in the midst of bereavement, when you are seeking to manipulate everyone and everything around you, stop and go back. Father, I am only a child, and I do not have the strength or the wisdom I need for the challenges before me. But from this day on, I will trust in You with all my heart, and I will never again lean on my own understanding. For when we are there, then we have discovered the nuts and bolts of wisdom for the Christian life. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture. Thank You for all that we have learned this morning. Father, for many of us, these are not new principles, but timely principles. Enable us, please, in the challenges that we face this week to take Your Word, to immerse ourselves in it, and to seek to live in the light of it in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My name is Keith Gross, and I am Executive Director of Neighborhood Focus. Neighborhood Focus is a free, faith-based, out-of-school time program for under-resourced children and students here in Greenville. Uh, we accomplish our mission through uh, academic support and spiritual enrichment and life skills development for children ages K-5 through 12th grade. Our goal is to provide a foundation for future success. Neighborhood Focus offers the opportunity to get involved in real simple ways. You can come on a Friday night club, you can come spend your time during the school year and the after school program, also during the summer camps. Neighborhood Focus is a difference maker. They're a difference maker in the lives of young people. Well, I've been here since the program started, and what I love about it is we have an opportunity to pour ourselves into the kids and put God's Word in it. Out of all the years I've been doing this, it's just been a blessing to be able to just see the kids grow, see the counselors grow, and just the fellowship and the friendships they build over the years that I've been here. I see the continuity and I also see the community. You have children who are sharing the good news of Christ and they're sharing it amongst themselves and, and they're learning how to verbalize that and, and ways to do that to take it into their Christian walk and take it back hopefully to their community. While the kids would tell you that they love any opportunity they have to get wet and get the counselors wet, they have a great time. I would just always remember the love of the kids and how they're so much fun and they're so joyous and to watch them rush in and give us huge hugs. I made a lot of friends. We did a lot. We learned a lot, of, a lot more about God than I didn't know about. I've learned new things about God and uh, we've went to many field trips. We've had fun all summer. I like coming here because I can have fun for the games and I can go to field trips and have new friends. My daughter, she's nine years old. She told me that this is one of the best decisions you've ever made. The Neighborhood Focus After School Program uh, requires significant volunteer support to execute properly. 
The three areas that we have a primary need for volunteers include help with our uh, food program, including picking up meals and distributing meals to the children in the early afternoon. Secondly, uh, help with monitoring homework and assistance with one-on-one -on -one tutoring. And lastly, we're always in need of individuals that enjoy coming out and spending time and recreation with the children. The most important goal for Neighborhood Focus is to take our kids on a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. It's because of the generosity of partners like First Presbyterian Church that we're able to do what we do. If you'd like to join us in our effort to make a difference to this next generation, please let us know. We'd enjoy the opportunity to have you join our team.